Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no home, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps and Peepers, Roberts and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hi, Dan. Hello. Who are I'm you? I'm Lindsay. You're, you're Lindsay. <laughs> I am. And guess what? Uh, chicken butt. No announcements today. <gasps> Just burning through. Can can I make an announcement about this fabulous sweatshirt? No, I said no. Fuck. Right. <laughs> no, what is it? What's your sweatshirt? I, I just love it. It's so soft and, soft and cozy. It is very soft and cozy. Uh, we've been announcement heavy lately and happy to blast into tales today. Let's do it. Do you have two or three? I, Dude, I, know I have three. Okay. I know you're I going ba- back and forth. Yeah, I found I found one to round it out. Nice. I nice. have uh, I have my two. I, my, my first story is the allegedly true tale that became the basis for the 1978 novel and then later the 1983 Barbara Hershey horror film, The Entity. Great oh, name. I've never seen that. I haven't either, but it okay. looks like it could be very good. Are you going to watch that one with me? Uh, I don't know. Uh, oh. we'll, we'll put a pin in that. Okay. Uh, may watch it. I don't know if I'll watch it with you. Yeah. <laughs> very, <laughs> very intense case of demonic infestation. Uh, the second story, much shorter. A sea mystery. Our first ghost ship tale. Ooh, that's fun. Uh, what happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste? Mm-hmm. So you yeah. got your... That's a interesting boat name. It's, it's, an old, it's an old boat. Mary Celeste. It's, 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 it's okay. a while back. All right. Uh, but I think I I think you're yeah I think you're gonna like it I um I don't know which story is gonna scare you more the first story is very intense and I don't know we've gone back and forth on well gosh dang it okay okay I'll just get into it I'll just get into it okay excuse yeah. socks this is my last pair of never worn socks I have to buy some new fuzzies <laughs> you're out I'm out but look at these cute doggy dogs they are cute little Bowers. dogs. Okay. Hopefully, I hope they help you with this one. Oh, great. You're, you're, you're going to have a decent amount of time to settle in okay, on this one before we'll we really that. jump into the uh, scary parts. So Doris Bither had given up all hope that anyone could save her from the living hell she'd recently found herself in. She felt fragile. She felt like she sh- soon might break. And then a chance encounter in an L.A. area bookstore gave her the first feelings of hope she'd felt in years. It was August 22nd, 1974 in Culver City, California. From a distance, a pair of young men seemed to be enjoying their lunch hour, browsing and talking. When the other patrons of the bookstore got near enough to hear what they were saying, they likely would have been surprised to hear the two men using words like parapsychology, neuropsychiatric, and telepathy. Did they assume that the two academic-looking men browsing the bookstore on a sunny late summer day were talking about some new sci-fi movie they'd just seen? That would have been a safer assumption than the truth. One person in the bookstore luckily did not think they were talking about a movie, or at least she really, really hoped that they weren't. A frazzled-looking, sleep-deprived woman in her mid-30s overheard these two colleagues chatting, and she immediately felt her spirits lift for the first time in a long time. Doris would later say that she knew instantly that if she could be saved from what had been tormenting her, these two men would be the ones to do it. The men she overheard were Barry Taff and Carrie Gaynor, both doctoral students. They'd been colleagues for years, colleagues of a very unconventional sort. Seven years earlier in 1967, Dr. Thelma Moss had opened UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. It was a new home for a new, controversial type of research, parapsychology, or the study of phenomena for which no adequate scientific explanation exists. 
Dr. Moss, who taught psychology for years, was now conducting scientific experiments in clairvoyance, telepathy, and even haunted houses. Unfunded by UCLA, the lab was allowed to operate inside the NPI, now the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior, on its fifth floor. It depended on the work of a group of young volunteers under Moss's tutelage, including the men in the bookstore that day, Barry Taff and Carrie Gaynor. And while the lab was the subject of criticism from other UCLA faculty, the subject of some mockery, the researchers soon found that the world at large had the opposite reaction to what they were doing. Most people seemed to love it. Calls and letters came in every day relating individuals' experiences with the paranormal. It was as if all these people had been waiting for someone to take their experiences seriously, including people who had or would go on to have very prestigious careers. One young woman was Judith Orloff, who would later become a professor of psychiatry at UCLA. She came in the lab one day when she was 19 years old to volunteer, and Orloff would later say, Thelma Moss was a huge influence on my life. I bring all this up to illustrate how it was common for Carrie and Barry to hear about people's paranormal experiences, to meet with people who were terrified of things happening around them or to them that they didn't understand, things they were often worried might be paranormally nefarious or demonic. By 1974, talking with people about the paranormal had become their entire life's work. And because of that work, they weren't as apprehensive as many would be when they were approached in the bookstore, approached by a woman with purplish bags under her eyes, a gaunt, frightened-looking woman with protruding cheekbones, a woman who looked tormented, a woman who, when she moved her hand, had her sleeve shift back to reveal a dark bruise around her wrist. I heard you talking, she said in a rough voice. I have to tell you something. You need to help me. And these two men listened in the bookstore. And as they listened, she told them her house was haunted, but not in the way she'd really ever heard of before. It was worse than anything she'd seen in a movie or read in a book. She said that she needed them to see for themselves what was going on. Otherwise, they would never, ever believe it. Curious, the two men agreed to visit her home the following week. Arriving at Doris's home at 11547 Braddock Drive, hmm. Taff noted that the yellow house was in a state of squalor. Doris, a single mother, lived there with her four children, a six-year-old girl and three boys, ages 10, 13, and 16. They walked inside and sat down. Without meeting their eyes, Doris began to tell the investigators everything that had happened, everything that had begun a few months back. Time now for the tale of the haunting of Doris Bither. Doris, born Doris McGowan, came from an upper-middle-class family. She did not come from a stable upper-class life. Doris's parents ran a turbulent household. Both were alcoholics who fought constantly. Mm. At the age of 10, Doris and her family moved to California from the Midwest. When she was a teenager, Doris had some sort of major altercation with her family that resulted in both of her parents, as well as an aunt and an uncle, all deciding to cut off contact with her. Ooh. I admittedly am speculating here, but it seems as if Doris may have been abused by a family member and that some of the family then took the abuser's side. That's immediately what I thought. That's what I read in between the lines when I was going through a few articles. She had very little family support, which in addition to a series of not-so-positive personal choices left her in a very bad financial spot, unable to move out of the home she felt tortured in. By the age of 30, she'd run through a number of failed marriages and relationships. She dated the same abusive man over and over. Not literally the same man. They each had a different face and a different birth certificate, but essentially the same guy. Yeah. She'd given birth to four children, all from different fathers, and none of those fathers were helping her raise those children in any way, shape, or form. The Culver City home where she and her children lived was ramshackle and badly maintained. It was also, at this point in her life, 
the very best she could do. The house had the living room and kitchen in the front of the property, while the bedrooms were in a different section in the back of the house, making an L-shape. And Doris had no clue about the type of torture she'd be submitting herself to when she moved into the small, innocent-looking yellow house on a sunny Southern California street. Doris usually heard them when she was in her bed. As soon as she turned off the last light, she'd get the feeling that there was something else, some other entity in the house with her and her family. Maybe multiple entities. As a mother of four, she was used to little creatures getting up and going bump in the night. It was hard to get four children into bed simultaneously. When one was asleep, one of the others would inevitably pop up for a glass of water or to use the bathroom. And these noises never bothered Doris. She'd been hearing them for years. She could tell without ever opening her eyes just by the way each of them walked, by how they opened cupboards, by how hard they shut the fridge, which kid of hers was up and about. But this was different. She didn't know who or what was responsible for these new noises that always came with a feeling of dread. Noises uh, weren't the, uh, the no- those noises weren't the ones, only ones she was hearing now as well, sorry. She'd hear what sounded like someone walking, kind of. The gate wouldn't sound quite right for a person. She'd hear an ominous, menacing, slow shuffle, and it would be accompanied by other unsettling noises, like the sound of someone dragging something, scraping something slowly across the wall. She'd feel the energy of the whole house shift when she heard this. It felt more observant somehow. It felt alive. The kids didn't notice all of this, not at first. They were like most kids, off in their own worlds, preoccupied with themselves. But Doris noticed. She felt it. She felt the being or beings watching her, tracking her every move. Then the banging started. As Doris lay awake at night, she heard it on the walls and the furniture. Bang! 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 The children heard this as well. Her youngest woke up and began to cry. This was when she really began to feel afraid. As she reached the next point in the story she was telling the two paranormal investigators, her eyes filled with tears. One night, she had fallen asleep after her boyfriend at the time had left to go back to his own house. He was, uh... Uh, She was feeling peaceful, happy that the evening had passed without fighting, which was common. As she drifted off to sleep, she felt someone caressing her hair. She thought that maybe she'd turned on the fan and forgotten about it or maybe left a window open. She didn't realize it yet in her sleepy state that she always made sure the windows were locked before bed. And they were all locked. And she didn't quite realize yet that if she had left the fan on, she would hear it. But she didn't. It was perfectly quiet. As she kept drifting off to sleep, she now felt a slight press on the side of her bed. Had her boyfriend come back to sleep here? She smiled without lifting her head from her pillow and said quietly, I thought you had to go home. There was no response. Oh, God. Maybe he wasn't in the mood for talking, she wondered. Then she felt the press of dry, chapped, cold lips to hers. Ah! I'm tired, she mumbled, turning her face back to her pillow. Now she felt a hand on her hip, slowly traveling up to her waist. Come on, she said. I need to go to sleep. Another hand now pressed against her knee. She was about to say something like, well, aren't we feeling frisky tonight? When she realized that the hand in her hair was still stroking her hair. Panic set in. Dear God, she thought, how many hands are on my body? With terror, she now registered that whoever, whatever, was in bed with her now, it was not her boyfriend. She was now very, very much awake. And a series of terrible realizations quickly began to bounce around her frightened mind. If her boyfriend had come in the house, why hadn't she heard the front door open? Why hadn't she heard the lock turn? 
Why hadn't her boyfriend spoken yet? Not once. This was not his way. Fear rising up from her stomach to her throat, she opened her mouth to scream, but no sound came out. She then tried to tear herself out of her bed, but she couldn't move. Oh, God. She was completely paralyzed. She could barely open her eyes. After a lot of effort, she forced them to crack slightly and peek out at the dark scene unfolding around her. She now saw a giant humanoid figure that looked like it possessed the body of a man, a man with no face, and he was not alone. Uh. There were two other figures, two smaller shapes, not as humanoid, and these two things, whatever they were, they were holding down her arms. They were pinning her down while the larger figure stood, floated above her, while he came and laid upon her. She tried to thrash away. But she was no match for the shadowy trio. Tears now streamed down her face as she was pressed down further into the mattress by invisible hands, while other hands then explored and invaded her flesh. Huh. As she lay helpless, as she was violated, she wondered what was happening in the other rooms to her children. Investigators Taff and Gaynor exchanged incredulous glances upon hearing all of this. They'd heard a lot of stories over the past few years, and some of them were really crazy, hard to believe. This one might top them all. Doris then proceeded to claim that every night since that first assault, whatever was in her house had come back to attack her again. She claimed she had been beaten sometimes savagely, night after night, that it hadn't stopped. She insisted that these dark forces would hold her down and not just assault her physically, but also sexually. She claimed incredibly that she had been raped in her bed at night by not just one, but multiple entities. What in the fuck? And she said that these was afraid that these assaults were never going to end. She wanted desperately wanted to move, but where? She had no family nearby who could or seemed willing to accommodate taking in her and her four kids. She had no friends who could do that either. She tried sleeping in the living room, but it still happened. She tried to stay awake, not to fall asleep, but no one can stay awake forever. And she couldn't manage her life if she was some sort of sleep-deprived zombie. She had to raise four kids. She had to work. And she was worried her life was about to completely fall apart. She cried herself to sleep every night now. She worried about losing her mind. She tried to tell herself it was just recurring nightmares. But what about the bruises? How could bruises be explained by dreams? After hearing all this, the investigators shared a knowing look. To both of them, bruises or not, it clearly sounded like Doris was experiencing sleep paralysis. And they knew that sleep paralysis, while scary and seemingly so real to the person experiencing it, had nothing to do with any sort of paranormal activity. Sleep paralysis is a neurological disorder, a condition identified by a brief loss of muscle control, known as atony, that can happen just after you fall asleep or right before you wake up. Standard REM sleep involves vivid dreaming as well as atony, which helps prevent you from physically acting out your dreams. And under most circumstances, Atony ends up ends upon waking, so a person never becomes conscious of this inability to move. As a result, the person suffering from sleep paralysis ends up in a mixed state of consciousness that blends both wakefulness and REM sleep. And while in this state, people can imagine horrifying things happening to them that feel so real because their brains are telling them that it is real, that they're awake. And this is exactly what Gaynor and Taft thought was happening to Doris. Uh-uh. Doris? Not relieved to hear this news. Devastated that they didn't believe her. The fleeting hope she'd felt when she first heard them talking at the bookstore was now vanishing from her perspective. She now felt that even the men who studied paranormal phenomena for a living, even they didn't believe her. What was she going to do now? She didn't know how many more nights of torture she could take. 
She begged the men to come back and talk with her and her kids again, and because of how incredibly distressed she was, she was nearly hysterical, the men took pity on her, and they agreed. And they'd end up coming back to her home numerous times. They would also take their investigation out away from Doris and her home, and they would question various friends and family. And what they discovered surprised them. It made them question their initial certainty that this was all nothing more than sleep paralysis. Over several subsequent interviews, the men talked to some relatives of Doris's who wouldn't even step foot in their house after what they had felt inside, after what they had heard. Strange, creepy noises and the feeling of something terrible, some horrible presence that didn't want them there. Some relatives even claimed to have seen impossible sights. A cousin and an uncle talked to the researchers in Doris's front yard in hushed tones as if they were worried about either being overheard and embarrassed or afraid that someone else or something in the house would hear them. They told the men about a time they'd both seen Doris tossed through the air like a ragdoll. Excuse me? She'd hit the sharp corner of her desk with her hip, and the wound wouldn't stop bleeding for what seemed like a strange, unnatural amount of time. She'd been launched into the air in a way you just can't do yourself, and they hadn't set foot inside her house ever since. When the researchers later asked Doris about this wound, she pulled up her shirt and showed them a scar on her hip. Had this really happened? Some of Doris's neighbors also testified to seeing apparitions moving about the house. Dark shadows passing behind curtains, movements followed in some cases by the entire family, then returning home. It wasn't just Doris who was freaked out by the recent hard-to-explain events. One visit Taft Taft came alone and talked with Doris's four children. He interviewed them all separately. The children told him about an entity they called Mr. Who's It, an entity all four had claimed to witness on numerous occasions. Taft noted that all of their descriptions of this entity matched each other's. They were remarkably consistent in both the descriptions and timelines of events. Mm-hmm. If Taft would have been a detective interrogating them about a crime, he would have come away believing they didn't do it. And these kids' stories would not change over the following decades. Many years later, in 2009, Doris's middle son, Brian Harris, would recall details of what he told Dr. Dr. Taff way back in the fall of 1974, 35 years earlier. He'd say, we all experienced some form of attack. There was the pushing, biting, and scratching being done to us. There were about four entities in the home, and they made themselves known by appearing all the time. He described the entities as follows. It was always like a fog, like a human, but not quite. In one instance, Doris's eldest son told Taft that he attempted to intervene when he heard his mom screaming and that when he got close to her, he was thrown across the room, thrown so hard he slammed into the wall and broke his arm. Dang. All of this information, of course, fascinated Taft and Gaynor. So many witnesses, so much activity, but despite numerous trips to the home, they still had yet to experience anything personally, anything themselves other than an instance of flickering lights that you could attribute to bad wiring, odd yes, but nothing compared to what they've been hearing from so many others. And then one night, that all changed. The investigators decided to run a little experiment. They came over late one night when most of the activity seemed to occur and they brought a lot of other people. They brought numerous volunteers, basically all of their volunteers, to have more possible eyewitnesses who could corroborate any paranormal activity and help document it. They set up high-speed cameras. They brought over multiple photographers. And this big group, described in some sources as being over 30 people, all crammed into Doris's room. And the investigators then asked Doris to antagonize the spirits that had been attacking her. Oh. See if she could provoke them into showing themselves in front of everyone. Yikes. 
and what this group claimed to witness is incredible. Doris began swearing and yelling, attempting to provoke the spirits that had been tormenting her. Show yourself, she shouted. Come out, what are you? Where are you, scared? You weren't scared last night. And then in front of everyone, lights started manifesting around the room, floating lights. The room suddenly felt cold. As Doris continued to provoke the spirits, a dark greenish mist started to form in a corner of the room. As if it was coiling, the green mist swirled and grew in front of everyone present. Within a few seconds, the form of a man's upper torso emerged from the mist. The torso, according to those who was there, was large, muscular looking. It had the shape of a head above it, but not facial details where a face should be. Despite no face, everyone agreed it did look like a male entity. The sighting was so intense, one of the volunteers fainted. Numerous photographs were taken, but nothing they saw ever showed up on the developed film. The Polaroid cameras some of them used refused to develop properly, only producing sheets of white fuzz. The only photo from the gathering that did develop that is unusual is a picture of Doris sitting on her bed, surrounded by investigators with the free-floating arc of light above her. I'll show that later. Doris's son, Brian, would later state that he'd always hated it when the investigators came over on nights like that because afterwards, the entities would always retaliate. The night all of these photos were taken, Doris left the house for a little while so the investigator could see how the house and the entities that seemed to exist inside of it would react to her absence. To the astonishment of the investigators, all of the bizarre phenomena they just witnessed ceased the moment she left the house and their cameras began to function normally again. Hmm. When she returned, so did the flickering lights, malfunctions, and strange noises. Taff and Gaynor now believed Doris. Unfortunately, they had no idea how to make it all stop. They were academic investigators, not exorcists. They didn't even necessarily believe in stuff like sage and spiritual cleansings, let alone know how to assist anyone with that. All the researchers could do was recommend that Doris and her children move. Leave the house and leave it now. Find someplace new. Even if it meant taking the kids out of school, leaving not just the house, but the city, get out, go somewhere, anywhere. Doris made a bunch of calls. The researchers helped her. They corroborated her story to others. They tried to make others understand that this was all very real. She was not crazy. Finally, a friend down in Carson, just north of Long Beach, took pity on her and offered her safe haven. To her, offered it to her children, and away they went. And then the attacks did not stop. She and her family moved again to San Bernardino, and then from San Bernardino to Texas, and then back to San Bernardino again. Dr. Taft kept in touch with her, and unfortunately, the attacks continued. Her mind seemed to continuously unravel further. Poor Doris later apparently ended up reporting that she'd been impregnated by one of the malevolent entities that followed her. What? A medical test would reveal that she was not pregnant, but instead suffering from a hysterical pregnancy. Eventually, Doris Bither disappeared with her family, shying away from the limelight gained by the release of a book and then film written about her experiences. Her children would go on to continually confirm everything that she had told investigators that had happened to her in that house in Culver City and afterwards. They've stated that their mom was tormented off and on for the rest of her life. In 1995, Doris Bither passed away at the age of 58. While it was stated that her death was likely the result of multiple organ failure, the, presi- the precise cause of Dorsey- Doris Bither's untimely death was never medically determined. Maybe the entities that followed her finally grew tired of tormenting her and decided to finish their terrible game. That's awful. Mm-hmm. I do not care for that one. Crazy, crazy story. L- l- uh, I feel so bad for her. Oh, Yeah. I mean, this is one of those ones where if it's true, it's like, yeah, you're fucking truly cursed. What a horrible life. I felt like I couldn't give any GTFOs because I knew that she was like a poor, struggling single mom. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a sad one. It's a sad one. It's pretty sad. Um, this first picture is that uh, Halo picture. Whoa, that's weird. Mm-hmm. So just an odd photo. You see, you know, all the people crammed around her right there. Bunch of people behind them taking the photo. Uh-huh. I think this next picture is of Doris Bither. Can't confirm 100%. Okay. But it shows up in numerous articles about the case. Uh, did a little Google search and uh, of this image, like the origin of this image, and it said, like, real Doris Bither. So maybe that's the only one I could find that might have been a good picture of her. She's really pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Doris's house in Culver City. Sorry, the guy behind her was so creepy. I know. I know. I'm assuming a boyfriend or something. Eek. Yeah. Is that, is that Ted Bundy? I know. And it, it feels like a still from a movie. So again, I'm not I know, 100%. I know. Something about it feels. Uh, but that first one was definitely her. Uh, and then th- this is Doris's yeah. house in Culver City. Yeah, I know exactly where that house is. I mean, like, I know exactly where that street is. I, Weird. Well, well, just because from working in production, yeah. one of like the last... What well, I guess it wasn't the last last, but one like towards the end of my time in LA, I was working yeah. at Agents of Shield, and we were at oh, yeah. Culver Studios. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and prior to that, I'd done other movies and shows there. So it's like and that's pretty close to there, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I can, and like I can picture the street sign. Like, as soon as you said it, I was like, oh yeah, I know exactly where that is. I, I do like Culver City. I love Culver City. Uh, and then it's th- crazy now, but and then this next one is uh, Doctor Barry Taff. Hello, Barry. So still still out there doing stuff. And then this final one is Doctor Carrie Gaynor. You don't watch this TV show? Mm-hmm. Hey, Carrie. But immediately, um, I was watching this show a long time ago called, called The Good Wife. It's like a lawyer oh, drama. I remember you watching And that, there was yeah. a character on the show, and his name was Carrie. And so I wanted <laughs> him to look like this very cute, blonde Carrie guy. And he did not. He looks fine. He looks fine. But he's, he doesn't. He's, he's, not, a, he's, not, a, he's other, not an actor. Well, if you saw the he's other not a heart guy. Job. Yeah. Yeah. I love that those doctors were based out of UCLA. I mean, I know they weren't funded by yeah, UCLA, but right. it, it does add a level of credence yeah, they were just trying to do what, you know, what others have tried to do as well. But basically, like, it reminds me of, like, the first Ghostbusters movie when they're trying to, like, scientifically document, you yeah, know, yeah. The, the, uh, a paranormal entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- I know that there's, um, I don't know if it's that same place mm-hmm. inside UCLA, but I know that uh, there is still, like, a, a specialized and sought after, like, neuroscience thing over there whether it's like a clinic or whatever because i have a a friend whose daughter suffers really severely with ocd and she was going to a program over there huh so i'm sure that it's still around in some capacity okay two things yeah have you ever had flick uh (laughs) i wrote down sleep paralysis and flickering lights and i was gonna say have you ever had flickering lights (laughs) i've had sleep paralysis you have for sure yeah for sure i i have not had the whole shadow phenomena yeah or like the hat man or any kind of you know entity that i felt like i was seeing or even feeling around me yeah but i have had that it's it's usually not when i'm waking up and actually i can't remember a single example of when i was waking up although it may have occurred but but i've numerous times been like mostly during the day with me oh like a nap yeah i'm not like a big napper not at all not at all but like in the past here and there when i've laid down to take a nap and but then i'm like i kind of want to be doing stuff too mm-hmm. i've had that that weird sensation and, it's, and it has freaked me out where you're falling asleep you, you think you're still fully awake and then i'll go to like move and i can't <sighs> and, I, and then i do feel panic not over a presence yeah but just why can't i move uh-huh and then sometimes then snap out of it. And it's just a really weird feeling. But that's sleep paralysis. That's interesting. It's never happened to me. My other question is, and I don't know if you know this about Doris and her family, but did anybody try an exorcism? 
You know, uh, it, it did not say that they weren't. Uh, they didn't. I shouldn't say they weren't. They didn't seem to be religious. But 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 in lots none of, of people who I are know, not religious will seek in those, it out. Well, in those cases, she may have in in the in the um, sources I was looking at. It's yeah. never mentioned. Okay, okay. It's just so sad. Mm-hmm. Yay, yay, yay. Yeek, yeek, yeek. I'm glad I didn't do any sad ghost stories. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, you made it through what I think is the most disturbing of today's stories. Yeah, I mean, it's bothersome for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely don't want it to be real. No, not when that many people can confirm it. I, well, yeah, it's, that's troubling that that many people confirm it. And just the thought of of um, a, a succubus, or well, I guess it would be... Um, succubus? It would be a succubus. I always get succubus and incubus confirmed when, I'm not, when I don't have it written down in front of me. One of those spirits. One's, one's the a male. One's the, it's One a bus. bus. One's the male, one's the female. She's riding the bus to hell, literally. <laughs> Ugh. Okay, so this 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 next story, I don't know. It, it's not not as intense in some ways, but it may linger with you longer. Is this the salami story? <laughs> this is what we joked about before. Yes, it is the <laughs> Dan Genoa. Was, Dan was asking me how to say, what is, how do you say it? Genoa, which I thought but was Genoa, I a city was, in Italy. I thought it was Genoa salami. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this might linger. Before I tell this next tale, time for a quick in-between story sponsor break. And it's back to story time now. No setup at all on this one. Hmm. We're just going to dive right in. Do it. Time now for the tale of the ghost ship, the Mary Celeste. The British brig, De Gracia, was about 400 miles east of Santa Maria, an island in the Azores on December 5th, 1872, in the middle of the Atlantic, when crew members spotted another ship adrift in the choppy seas. The ship was bobbing up and down roughly 900 miles off the coast of Portugal approximately 2,000 miles off the coast of Nova Scotia. Right away, something didn't feel right. This wasn't a uh, terribly normal vacation location. It was a very odd location for a ship just to be aimlessly floating about. What was going on with the crew? Some sort of sickness take hold of them? As the two ships grew closer, the degracious Captain David Morehouse looked through a spyglass and couldn't see any people aboard the other vessel. Highly unusual. A feeling of apprehension grew amongst the crew of the brig De Gracia. Morehouse changed course to offer help and ordered that a boat be lowered. First mate Oliver DeVoe and second mate John Wright were then sent off to investigate. As these two men and a small group of sailors with them approached the ship, a thick fog seemed to roll in. They knew that hot current waters could produce a natural haze on the water's surface, but the water wasn't warm that day. It was December. The haze appeared out of nowhere like a white blanket, and now all they could see was the ship's hull rising up before them. It all felt very portentous. On the whole, they read the words Mary Celeste. When they reached the deck, they found the ship to be eerily silent. Not a word from anyone, not a whisper. They immediately wondered if the ship had been abandoned. Even if everyone was below deck working, there should have been some kind of sounds of human life, but there was nothing. Only the sounds they and their men made, and the sound of the ocean beating against the boat's side, the groans of the sails and the wind. The men went below deck, creeping through silent hallways. They could hear the chatter of rats and vermin bumping the ship's cargo, but no people. Weird. Both the Mary Celeste hatches were uncovered, and her hold contained hundreds of wooden barrels marked alcohol. Undisturbed barrels. Months and months worth of alcohol. Who would leave that behind? If pirates had attacked the ship, they certainly wouldn't have left it. And in 1872 in the North Atlantic, piracy almost completely unheard of. The age of piracy had ended decades and decades prior. They crept into the cabins, a feeling of dread slowly rising. Were they about to be ambushed? If so, by whom? By what? 
DeVoe and Wright went into the captain's quarters and found the logbook still laying open on the desk in the mate's cabin and the log slate or running log on the cabin table. The final entry on the ladder gave the ship's position to be uh, at 8 a.m. November 25th, uh, just six miles northeast of Santa Maria Island in the Azores. What had happened in the 10 days between the Mary Celeste's last log entry and the crewman's discovery? Did an unmanned ship just aimlessly drift for over 400 miles? Highly unusual, highly unlikely. Adding to the mystery, the ship's stores still contained provisions for six months and ample drinking water. In the seamen's quarters forward, and by the berths at uh, amidships, occupied until recently by the Celeste Cook and two mates, were sea chests packed with clothes. The captain's cabin likewise contained clothing, stowed in boxes hanging from hooks, including besides masculine attire, dresses, a pair of women's overshoes, and articles of child's wearing apparel, also child's toys. A melodeon, a small accordion of sorts, stood opposite the captain's bed, which had been slept in from the looks of it by a child. Under the bed, DeVoe found a sheathed sword with faint discolorations on his blade. He thought it might be blood. Had the crew mutinied? Or mut- mutinied? It was highly unlikely. There was no blood anywhere else. There was no other signs of violence. And Benjamin Briggs, the Mary Celeste captain, had a reputation as a firm but very fair ship's master. He had a reputation for hiring good crews. Crews he'd feel safe living alongside his wife and child for weeks on end out on the open sea. And if the crew had mutinied, why were all of the ship's valuables still on board? It seemed as if every living soul aboard the Mary Celeste had simply vanished, leaving food on tables, unmade beds, open books. The crewmen returned to the ship, their ship, and reported to Morehouse that the ship of the Mary Celeste was completely unoccupied. They relayed the, all the strange details I just told you in this troubled Morehouse, who knew Briggs. Morehouse knew that on November 7th, 1872, Briggs and the crew of the Mary Celeste, a merchant ship with a cargo of alcohol, had left New York Harbor for Genoa, Italy, eight days before the De Gracia had set out from the very same port. Hmm. Briggs had brought seven hand-picked crew members along with his wife, Sarah, and their two-year-old daughter, Sophia. They'd left their seven-year-old son, Arthur, behind so he could finish his schooling, and Morehouse now thought that Arthur was likely an orphan, an orphan whose only sibling had also died. Morehouse was baffled. If the ship was abandoned for a reason, any reason, why was there no note left behind? If people had gotten sick and died, where were their bodies? The scene just didn't make sense. Researchers would later pose the theory that alcohol vapors expanded in the Azores heat and blew off the main hatch, prompting those aboard to fear an imminent explosion. But the crewmen had found both hatches closed, and they hadn't smelled any alcohol fumes. That also makes no sense. Also, abandoning a ship in the open sea is the last thing a captain would order and a sailor would do. Where were the ten people who were supposed to be on board the Mary Celeste? The crew of the De Gracia split up and together the two ships sailed to Gibraltar, where they could claim salvage rights under maritime law. In Gibraltar, the Queen's proctor, acting as attorney for the Crown, promptly convinced himself that the Mary Celeste crew had broken into the alcohol below decks and gotten drunk, and then were murdered by the Briggses and a chief mate who then escaped in the boat. But this troubling accusation didn't hold up with just about anyone else. And after more than three months, a court decided that there was no evidence of foul play. In in February of 1873, the court released the Celeste to proceed to Genoa. In March, the same court awarded 1,700 pounds to the DeGracia's master and crew as salvers. But by then, any lingering hopes that the Celeste crew might still turn up alive had all but completely faded. And that missing crew was never found. No remains. Where did they go? Truly a mystery. Some wonder if alien abduction holds the answer. 
What if Briggs' 10-person crew was abducted in the middle of the ocean, never to be seen again? Others have wondered if a real-life sea monster, a giant squid, perhaps, a giant squid able to reach up to 50 feet in length, attacked the vessel and pulled the crew below. Unlikely. Still others wonder if dark, paranormal forces took over all on board, some spectral enemy that perhaps convinced those aboard the Mary Celeste to simply walk off the ship and into the cold, deep waters of the Atlantic, or maybe some entity that violently pulled them below. Highly unlikely we'll ever have any satisfactory answers as to what happened to one of the world's most famous ghost ships, one of the many mysterious cases of a vessel floating around out on the ocean with no crew and no sign of what happened to that crew. The Mary Celeste was not the first such ghost ship and likely will not be the last. I didn't know that was a thing. Ghost ships? Yeah. Creepy. So is a ghost ship just a ship that's been abandoned that's out at sea? Right. Sometimes they'll find them in port. I mean, it hasn't happened a ton, a ton, but a fair amount of examples of, yeah, uh, of people just, you know, finding a ship out on the open ocean or a ship that somehow is, you know, coming to port that is just, there's no one on board. They're just gone. Could you imagine the kind of terrible pl- publicity that would be for like Carnival Cruises? Oh my God. That would be the craziest I would paranormal shit my type pants. story. Yeah. Oh my god. If, if but a I kind of fucking... want it to happen. <laughs> Terrible for everyone on board, but for the rest of the paranormal enthusiasts in the world, if a giant cruise liner giant. pulled into port and there was no one on board, that would be the craziest story in the history of the world. Yep. It would also be really fun to investigate. It would. It so. Would. Okay. Maybe. Okay. So let's. <laughs> let's rein it in. Now your yeah. mind's going on. I that. know. Now my mind's going there, and I almost said let's hope, and I'm like, no, let's not hope for that. That's no. terrible. No, I mean, I think as close as you get is like all those ships that were stuck at sea during the beginning of COVID. Right, right. Not abandoned ships. Not abandoned, yeah. Yeah, just... Uh, Packed full of disease. Ooh, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, the first picture here, the Mary Celeste Man. and wife and daughter It's so crazy. Captain Briggs. It's so crazy to me to think that, A, that ship goes far enough into the water that there... Because it looks fairly shallow mm-hmm, for there to be living quarters underneath. Right. And then it's so hard for me to think about... That being such a normal way of life. I know. It it does go deeper into the water than it appears in that photo. Well, of course it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, still, just to be out on a wooden boat, bobbing wooden, up and down in the ocean. Wooden fucking boat that can <laughs> catch on fire. I know, for weeks on end. Uh, yeah, just like the middle of the fucking ocean where you can't see anything. I know. What's it called? What's that? Um, and, they were, and this boat was truly in the middle of nowhere. nowhere ocean. What's it? What's it called? Something... Is it agoraphobia when you freak out when you can't see land? No, agoraphobia is when you don't want to leave your house. Hmm. I don't know what that uh, phobia is you're talking about when you can't see land. Yeah, it's something, something. I don't know. Something, something phobia. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> wish, right I could, wish I could see landophobia. Um, <laughs> l- landhoophobia. <laughs> Uh, this next one is a sketch of the Mary Celeste. That's cool. Yeah, just a cool, some uh, some cool art Would you there. ever want to go on a boat like that? Do they still no. make wooden ships nope. like this? I have no interest in going on a wooden boat in any body of water ever. Okay, I would do it if it was like a one-hour tour. I just, I, my, my thing isn't, isn't about like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my thing isn't about um, getting, uh, being scared of something. I just, it's motion sickness with me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. know that I also. Right, right. right. No, we, thank you. We had a horrible now, honeymoon boating the, experience. This next picture is a, there's so many theories about what it could have happened. So okay. this, is a, this is a picture that's kind of evidence of uh, a lesser known theory. Some people think that a small plastic boat of Teletubby figurines <laughs> might have something to do with the disappearance of crew. <laughs> they floated out there and found Teletubbies them. are so fucking creepy. <laughs> the weird noises. That's, I thought that was the Woody voice. It kind of is, but it is kind of like, <laughs> it's, really, it's just, <laughs> it's more, no. to me, it's oh, like the okay. original minion. 
Hmm. It's kind of like a it's minion like, voice. Yeah. Happy. And, but it's so, so yeah, weird. So it's nonsense, obviously. Okay. Um, you used a very big fancy word in that story. Portentous. And, uh, what the fuck does that mean? Like uh, ominous. I, I, I don't was, have the dictionary in front of me. When but you said it, it, I was like, is that a word? Did he misspeak? I think I had an actual physical reaction to that word. I've never heard it. Portentous. Yeah, like, Except a like the portent, fancy like, um, pants word of the week <laughs> from Times or from the Secret Suck. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know. It just um. I just we just I, thrown it out there. Like, well, oh, let's see for these. You know, I do. I do actually lean on a thesaurus pretty hard when I'm when I'm putting these stories together because <laughs> okay. when you're like, how many? Like, I don't want to say every single week. It was like malevolent. I, you know, I get it. You know, you know, it's it's like no, I do. You, you run out. It just feels well, repetitive. So I was like, hello. Fucking, let's try and sneak in portentous. I had to rain in the GTFOs because my and also my mm -hmm. reactions are usually like, oh, weird. I'm like, oh, that's strange. And like, yeah. it's like, yeah. How many times can you say that? For everyone's like, yeah, yeah Lindsay, we know. It's fucking weird. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm aware of it too. I know you don't want to like not be yourself and just like not have a normal reaction. But but right. at least I'm like, well, at least I can add a little bit of variety. Oh, and, I'm sorry, I called yeah. you out on it. <laughs> That's no, okay. It's, uh, it's you know, it was funny. a word too. I was like, huh. huh. It was in one of the sources, sure. and I'm like, I like that one, but I, I had to look it up. Um, and then also, what is your theory? Because my theory is absolutely hmm. fucking aliens. Yeah, you know, because because I think that even if all ten people in some mm -hmm. weird scenario with the alcohol vapors or whatever, somebody somebody at some point would have found like a floating body. I know right? it, it is. Well, also, I guess well, shark shark food. Shark, yeah, I sharks don't food. Know. Um, no, they probably wouldn't have found a body, but but maybe a body part. I don't know. It's just weird because my mind would go to pirates. My right. mind initially, but at that time, and I had to look into that. That wasn't the time of pirates in those waters, like at all. And the thing about the pirates is the uh, where's why would they leave the alcohol? Where's they, Waldo? They, yeah, Waldo. but that doesn't make any sense. And then, so then I'm like, uh, any kind of non-paranormal theory is almost crazier than the paranormal theories. Yeah. Because then my mind goes to this thing of like, well, what if some ancient maritime serial killer <laughs> who just liked to make, who, who just liked to make everybody fucking walk off a boat and then just leave without taking anything. That's so dumb. It's, it's ludicrous. None of it makes any sense. No. And especially like the ship wasn't beat up. That's the thing. There was no signs of a struggle. Right. So, so I would think like, you know, you're not going to just fucking walk the out into the water. money was there? Yeah. Everything's there. Um, all that alcohol, which was, you know, the most valuable part of the ship. I mean, that's what they were taking to Genoa and, uh, going Genoa to salami <laughs> and going to sell. So yeah. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. All of like, uh, it's inventory was there. Mm -hmm. It's a very odd story. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, M much, much less creepy if it just would have sank. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, I have three stories today Okay. and, um, I, I find them all to be like a little bit different a little bit mm -hmm. interesting the last one um i was inspired to pick that one because i recently got an email from a fan asking for more stories like that i'll, I'll share with that so this first story i usually don't have photos but at the end of this story i have five photos okay so that's uh, that's kind of fun that's exciting that's exciting and and i just feel like the story um i don't think it's gonna like knock you on your ass with fear i just think it's a, a pretty cool tale about tying the past to today Okay. Um, and I'm just curious, like, and we can talk about it at the end, but do you, th do you think ghosts have a lifespan? Like, is it possible for oh, a ghost to have- that's an odd thought. I've never thought about that. Or do they have a shelf life, if you will? I've n literally never thought of that. Okay. I, I guess I've always assumed that, like, if an entity uh, is, is real and, and sentient, not like a- um, some something caught in a loop, right? But right, like, right. Which right. is a ghost theory where it's like you're just seeing a scene acted over again. Because in that situation, I don't think that thing is sentient. It's just like a echo. Yeah. But if it's, if a thing has an like consciousness, right? I would think it would always be. A, I don't know. That's I guess we don't know the rules. Weird. Okay. 
It, this story made me question that. That's okay. why I wanted to ask you. So we can talk more about it afterwards. Um, okay, so this message comes in right to the point. Hey, guys. I have a local legend near the city I grew up in, along with a story about my experience with it. So so actually a little bit of setup. Okay. To, to cue you. I'm from the Bay Area, a city that runs along the San Joaquin River, about 45 minutes away from San Francisco. There's a regional park nearby I've always gone to ever since I was a young child, and I still go to this day. The name of the park is the Black Diamond Mines, a group of coal mining towns near the base of Mount Diablo. Coal was first discovered here in 1859, and the mining operation quickly gained traction. This uh, this coal field became California's largest producing 400 million tons of coal that was dist- distributed all over the Bay Area. In 1906, the town sites of the mines were abandoned due to the mining being too expensive and a cheaper imported coal being used. Hmm. Unfortunately, the story of the Black Diamond Mines was not without tragedy. Many miners have lost their lives in horrible accidents. Children and women have died from epidemics. There has even been a reported witch trial that had, occur- that had occurred. A nearby cemetery named Rose Hill Cemetery is home to 80 headstones. However, it is estimated that over 200 people have been buried here. It is said that the cemetery and the miners are some of the most ha- and the mines are some of the most haunted places in the Bay Area. The inciting incident that brought on one of our most recognized local legends is the death of Sarah Norton. Sarah was a local midwife married to Noah Norton, who founded the coal mining town of Nortonville. Very creative guy. (laughs) She was a beloved woman in the area, delivering over 600 babies during her career and never (laughs) lost a single one. That's crazy for that time. Mm -hmm. On October 5th. 1879, Sarah was on her way to deliver a baby in the nearby town of Clayton. Unfortunately, she would never make it. While traveling to her destination, the horse-drawn buggy she was being carried in lost control. As a result of this, Sarah was thrown from the cab, using, causing her to have her skull crushed upon impact, and she died instantly. Sarah was not a religious person and had told her children that she did not want to have a funeral when she died. Interesting. However, the townspeople were so grateful for all that she had done, they decided to give her a proper funeral against her wishes. Hmm. Upon the day the residents were to hold a funeral for her, a violent storm erupted, causing the funeral to be delayed until the next day. Their second attempt was much like the first. A violent storm erupted out of nowhere, causing cattle to begin charging through the town. As a result of the two sudden storms, the townspeople decided to call off the funeral and follow the wishes of Sarah. They laid her to rest in Rose Hill Cemetery shortly thereafter. Ever since her funeral, it is said that Sarah still roams the surrounding area of her resting place. She shows up in all white. While I personally don't believe this name is fitting, she is known most famously as the White Witch. Hmm. My experience with Sarah happened last year in 2019. The mines are biking distance from my house, and every Saturday I buy lunch from the local Trader Joe's and begin (laughs) my weekly trip to the regional park. Whenever I would ride around the mines, I would inevitably pass by Rose Hill Cemetery as it lies beside my favorite trail. I would never enter the cemetery, simply pass by. But but this day was different, a feeling I could not quite place, a sudden urge to head up to the cemetery and find Sarah. I've heard about the local legend, but it was only through word of mouth. I decided to satisfy whatever I was feeling and head up to the cemetery. While I was walking, I noticed the quaking grass along the path began to blow in the wind. 
Then I noticed that there wasn't a wind blowing. Then I noticed the grass was only shaking around where I was walking. Still, I was was not spooked. I chalked it all up to the slightest wind that I couldn't feel, even though I couldn't explain that either. I finally made my way to the gate. I opened it and entered the cemetery. After only a couple of minutes of searching for Sarah's plot, I found it. I read the inscription and the date that she had passed, October 5th, 1879. For some reason, I felt that date looked familiar in some way, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I took my phone out to take a photo of the headstone and found out why the date was in fact so familiar. Saturday, October 5th, my my lock screen read, this day was the 140th anniversary of Sarah Norton's death. This experience has left me confused more than scared. Was this all a coincidence or was Sarah calling me there for some strange reason? Perhaps she lay there still angry about those townspeople and what they had tried to do 140 years ago. But I guess I'll never know. Thanks, guys, for what you're doing. Really enjoy the show. Thomas. Thanks, Thomas. Isn't that weird? (laughs) That is weird. I know. (sighs) Yeah, because there are a fair amount of stories, you know, when you you look into a bunch of paranormal lore about um, things being spotted on, like, the anniversary of a thing, Mm -hmm. which is such an odd thought when you really, like, analyze it, like – like so, so the, the, like these spirits are aware of time. Oh, they have calendars. <laughs> right, right. Chalking off the days. Yeah, yeah. It's but very I don't know. unusual. Yeah, why? Why well, does that happen? But I do have. I, I am so grateful for Thomas for sending in the photos because I thought the photos really like bring it all home. So yeah. our first photo that is Sarah Norton, just like you know, regular okay. woman of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, our second photo is of the Rose Hill Cemetery. I love those creepy old uh, know, cemeteries like good? from that era. I know. Mm-hmm. I, and I love that, like, you know who the fancy people in town were because they got to section off. Right there behind that little gate or those, fence. Yeah, those little, like, and then you can see that they're built up with uh, bricks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, very cool uh, style of headstones and all that back uh-huh. then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very elaborate. And then this is Nortonville. This is like the main oh, street, yeah. you know, back when it started. Yeah, and it just like, you know, it, it looks like a mining town. Mm-hmm. Uh, any mining town I've ever driven through, gone to visit, Virginia City, like it just all has that kind of vibe. Yeah, a bunch of buildings just thrown together quickly. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then um, this fourth picture is the um, the coal, the Diablo oh, uh-huh. coal field. Okay. So just, you know, I, I think maybe just seeing this as authentication of where he was. Authentic, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then this last picture is the picture that he took on October 5th of her headstone. Um, so, yeah, it's like, you know, I, I love that Thomas sent proof. He's like, look, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. there. It happened. I, I love, and probably I don't know if anybody else would care about it. I just love the randomness of two back-to-back stories from the 1870s. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Mm-hmm. Like how, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know why that, I was like, oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. The ghosts told us to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the ghost wanted to hear some 1870s stories today. Oh, man. Well, next up, Dan, I have like a more traditional haunted house story. Okay. Um, From up in Canada. Is it, is it from 1870s? <laughs> no, it's not. It's mm. much more recent. Okay. Are you out if it's not? Uh, I was really hoping to be oh, an 1870s show from here on out. Oh, oh, okay. Well, we can work on that. I uh, I love that a lot of, we don't get a lot of stories from Canada, but I feel like everyone I get is really good. And I, <laughs> I was cracking myself up yesterday thinking about it. Like, is it because like the Canadians are so polite? They just don't want to like share mm-hmm. these stories. They want to hold it in. They don't want to upset anybody else. I know. Th- that is a real thing too. Just like certain states, you know, like Minnesota nice. Uh-huh. There's there's like a couple like areas of the states that are where people are just, yeah, far more um, 
outgoing with their friendliness than people in other parts of the country. And I do love like from working in Canada a lot, you know, years ago, but like when I used to work in Canada all the time. Yeah. Uh, so nice. So nice. And, I've, and, and the overwhelming majority of Canadians I've met, so nice. And I know they're not all like, hey, sure, we're all course. fun, happy people. They're fucking assholes. Yeah. But a lot, of, a lot of nice Canadians. I know when I was uh, this, like it sent me in a little rabbit hole because I was like, is that really, is that just like my experience? Does everyone think it's that? It's clearly a cultural thing. Oh, yeah. Well, Some that, kind of emphasis. I was, um, yes, I read this like thing and it was saying that, you know, Canadians, um, they value um, personal space, which I was like, great. Yes. I love that. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, they value order, like in their households. Things are like neat and clean. And put away. I was like, are you, yes. Are you Canadian? <laughs> I fucking might be. Um, that they, like their style of dressing is, they, it was interesting to read. Denim? It, <laughs> no, oh. um, that they're more casual, like even in the workplace, unless mm-hmm. you have a formal career, like a doctor or a lawyer, it's much more casual. Um, they don't use a lot of like uh, Mr. Mrs. It's very yeah. informal that they care a lot about the environment. I, the whole thing I was like, ah, fucking I'm going to Canada. Do you know, do you know why I said den- denim? Because that's like a stereotypical, yeah, like the Canadian, Canadian tuxedo. tuxedo. I, you were trying to rise above it. Well, because I love wearing denim on denim. Oh, okay. So I just don't see a problem with it. Okay, here we go. Um, and I just want you to think like, do you think while we're in this story, mm-hmm. do you think that within a haunting, good spirits can ward off the bad spirit for the person? That's that's a cool one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I so hope so. I, it would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Like ghost wars. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'd be like sit there with my popcorn, watch it go down. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd watch a ghost fight. <laughs> ghost boxing mm-hmm. okay greetings from the great white north dan Lindsay, and the entire team i came over from time suck thank you, thank you. and absolutely love scared to death <laughs> so i figured i should try and add my own tale to its growing mythos uh this is the story of the raven house in 2012 i purchased raven house an older four-bedroom home with a detached garage in my small hometown on the canadian side of the ontario minnesota border for the low price of 69,000 canadian like and that is equal to 44,000 us dollars at the time wow i bought it in an estate sale it was built in 1917 the other houses in the neighborhood were in uh sorry the house wasn't much to look at, but the location was prime and similar houses nearby were selling for three times as much. So it was too good to pass up. Mm-hmm. I worked away from home ten on 10 day stretches. And so I invited some friends to come live there to keep an eye on the place while I was away. Right away, they would report odd happenings in the house, such as random cold spots, strange noises in the night and doors opening randomly. We rationalized this, that it was the result of the house being very old and settling with the changing weather. A year after moving into the house, my job changed and I was home every single night where my own personal experiences began. Small at first with recently used, uh, sorry, small at first with recently used objects going missing or turning up shortly after in other rooms, lights flickering and the distant giggling of a small child. My friends and I would wake up and joke that the house was just the house ghost was just screwing with us again. But the rational part of my brain wrote off these occurrences as results of absentmindedly moving things, the old house wiring not being very soundproof, and the house not being very soundproof. That year rolled into the next. My friends moved out and others moved in. I began hosting a cousin from an hour away so he could get work in my town, and I'd also gotten a dog, half German Shepherd, half Husky. It was going forward from this point that things began to ramp up in severity. Everyone in the house over the next four years would experience the unexplained small 
child's laughter, the, the <laughs> sound of marching throughout the house and disappearing objects and lingering shadows. It was the shadows that started to really weigh on my mind. Shadows that seemed too dark, felt as if they grew when you weren't looking at them, and that my dog would stare at, growling lowly before, before cowering away. It was in the four-year period that the sleep paralysis started randomly among those of us living in the house, but more often to me than others, which I now wonder if it was because I had been in the house for the longest. It always occurred shortly after 1 a.m., being jolted awake, unable to move, feeling pressure on the chest, pushing down into the mattress. Each time was worse than the last, starting with the pressure growing to... Starting with the pressure, growing to seeing menacing humanoid black figures with glowing red eyes, crawling up the bed, applying pressure on the bed. My friend's sleep paralysis experiences stopped there, but I was not so lucky. The demonic figure spoke to me on several occasions, whispering in my ear, feeling the pressure on my chest and hot breath on the side of my face. I would hear in a piercing, low, guttural whisper, not time. <laughs> several of the next occasions, it would say... In the same horrible voice, not yet, as if taunting me of things to come. In the sixth year in the Raven house, my friends moved out, my cousin got a place of his own, and I had moved my girlfriend in, which, which was then my final bout with the sleep paralysis. It had been several months since the previous episode, so I had actually relaxed about my uneasing feelings, and all of which became undone that night. It began as it always had, at 1 a.m., the darkness merged into, into the demonic being, crawled up from the foot of the bed. The weight on my body was unbearable. As the figure came even with me, I could feel it raise a hand off my body, seeing it bring a sharp, pointed finger to my girlfriend's face and make a single scratch alongside her face and drawing blood. It was at this point, its angry red eyes locked on me. It bent in so close and I heard that familiar voice again. Soon followed by a hoarse, evil laughter as I blacked out. Jeez. I woke up, panicked in the morning, and was not reassured when I looked over and saw a drop of blood on the pillowcase where my girlfriend's head had been that night, and she had no explanation. That morning, we began looking for a new house and had one within three months. Those three months were not silent, but not as horrible. The shadows were still there, but there was another presence keeping it at bay, as it were. I experienced two other entities in those final three months, completely different and in a peaceful way. I can only just picture them as the only time I was aware of their presence was in that hazy brain fog of disturbed sleep. One was tall, thin, looked like an old-timey soldier, like something out of World War II, with a kind smile standing guard just outside the bedroom door. The other being a young blonde girl dressed out of the same era, think Little Orphan Annie, with pigtails, rubbing my dog's belly with the same giggles I'd heard years before. What? We moved out of the Raven house in July, but hadn't sold it. When come September, one of my friends who had been the first to move in asked if I'd rent it back to him, as he had recently moved back to the area and was bringing his wife and young daughter with him. I hesitated initially, but given the calm I had felt before leaving the house, I thought that maybe all of that odd stuff was over. Throughout the next year and a half, my now fiancé and I would go visit my friend and his family in the Raven house, who didn't seem to experience any of what we had over the years. Only after they moved out this May did we hear about their four-year-old daughter's imaginary friend, a little girl with yellow hair and two ponies, and dressed funny, who liked to hide her toys from her. 
After my friend moved out, I decided that was enough. I didn't want to be a landlord anymore. And I did a facelift on the house over the summer, never once feeling the darkness I had once feared and posted the house for sale. I accepted an offer in October. And while I can't say for sure that the shadow is gone, I don't feel bad. I know that someone will be watching over the new owner as the soldier and the little girl stood hand in hand in the kitchen and seemed to wave goodbye to me through the windows what? as I locked the deadbolt and walked away from the Raven house for the very last time. If it happens to make the show, I, I am honored. I prefer to remain anonymous. Um, it's <laughs> so sweet. Despite my name dropping email, you are welcome to do with my story as you please. <laughs> Isn't that weird? That's so that's so weird. That's so weird. Yeah. I didn't say his name at the beginning, did I? Uh I can't remember. I can't remember. I got now. very nervous. Like I started fumbling on my words because all of my sudden my brain was like, Oh, oh yeah, I did shit, that it was supposed to be anonymous. Shit, 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 shit. So we'll have to <laughs> we might have to go back and bleep out his name. Poor guy. If, yeah, if all of this doesn't make any sense, then we cut it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good I, catch, Joe. I love that we just like take out the whole story. Um, yeah, the, and then the possibility, I mean, I guess you know what he's claiming of, of seeing them the last day there. Yeah, do you think like <sighs> like this like nasty entity is haunting him and then all of a sudden, well, I don't even want to say all of a sudden these other two show up. It's like it right. feels like they had been there for a long time based on cold spots, the giggling. But do, but I mean, what do you think? Can like the good guys outdo the bad guys even on another plane? I have no idea. That that uh, yeah, this is uh, two thoughts that I never thought before about the paranormal before today was uh, you know, do they have a life uh, a shelf life? But but the shelf life you were referring to with the first story, right? Yes. And that was so it was really less about a shelf life and more about like it just comes up at certain anniversaries. No, 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 no. I mean like do, do ghosts die? I mean, I know they're dead, but like do they just then live on forever in the ether? Like, are they just, okay, Oh, like, right. So that just sort of just made you think about that. Like, yeah, like another like, hundred years from now, will they see it again? Like, will, will Sarah still be there? Is she still, will mm. she continue to haunt? I mean, is that, is that a curse of being a ghost? Like if you become a ghost, cause I don't even know how that works. And I don't know if we all become ghosts. <laughs> like there's so many unanswered questions, but let's just say I die. Yeah. Okay. And maybe there's an, there's a path for ghosts and a path for not ghosts. Okay, so let's say I die and I go down the ghost path. Am I stuck on that forever and ever and well, ever? Do I eventually uh, not become a ghost and just kind of disappear into nothingness? Like, well, to believe in a ghost, you have to believe in an afterlife. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I think most people who believe in this afterlife and ghosts seem to believe that like being a ghost is kind of like this purgatory situation. Right, that where, you're stuck. Right, based on all the tales of cleansings, mm -hmm. where what is the main thing they tell them? They're like, you need to move on. Right, you can you know, go. That, that whole, you can go now. You, like, you're not the alive. Next, next phase, next plan. So I, I would think that probably the most common theory, obviously all of this stuff is theoretical, yeah. um, is that the, the entity stays there until it can figure out to, how to move on. Right. Which I don't know if there's a time limit on that, and then I don't and then the, and then the good and the bad thing. I mean, I guess that does make sense. I mean, we're always talking about because this is a scary show, a horror podcast about the scary entities. So it's not right. like I'm, it's not like I'm ever going to tell a tale of like, hey, here's this tale of this really nice ghost, <laughs> right? But I'm sure they're out there. You know, yeah. I know they are. There's they a, have there's, to be. there's those. You claims. know they are. I know that there's claims of uh, those. I was like, what do what do you know that I don't know? <laughs> um, okay, well. Now, now, some people would say going to Canada is international travel since we're in the States. <laughs> yeah. so I thought we would take like a slightly more adventurous international journey. Okay. You ready for one more story? I am. Um, okay. Well, this story takes us to India. Oh, yeah. Really, really far away. Mm -hmm, which is also like very high in my list of places. I know places. you really want to go there. Yeah. I really want to go. Does somebody want to be my tour guide? Anybody? Anybody? Mm -hmm. um, okay. So this, this story 
is something that we've talked about before mm-hmm. that like comes from like sometimes to the Middle East or just like kind of over in that part yeah. of the world. Do you yeah. have any guesses? Right. Do you know? <sighs> we've told two stories like this before about um, folklore from mm-hmm. over there. What's uh, something that can get you? About, about the, uh, oh, the gin. Yes, it's a gin okay. story. Yes. So yeah. I, got, I got this email from this fan, Farah, and she was saying like, Oh my, like she was like, Hey, I heard you referencing that. Like, um, I'm so interested in the gin. Yeah. And then I, it's, it's like the universe just handed this to me. Perfect. I know. Okay. Uh, so here we go. A few weeks ago, you guys covered jinns, which are being, which are beings that Muslims believe in. Mm-hmm. I want to preface this by saying we believe that most jinn are good, but jinn are not allowed to mingle with humans. So I'm guessing if one shows up, they're not one of the good guys. The story takes place in India after my mom's family had moved to India from Saudi. Mm-hmm. Back then, barely anyone had cars. So my mom's uncle, Muhuja, Mamu, it's like so, I looked up how to say this name and I even have a phonetical spelling. Right. Mamujan okay. would drive around at night with, on the wide open roads. One night, he saw a woman walking around the side of the road, seemingly carrying something in her arms. She wore all black with a long scarf wrapped around her head. Normally, he would have seen if she needed help in some way because it wasn't safe to walk around at night, especially when there were so many scorpions and cobras in the area. However, something about her didn't feel quite right. Growing up, we've all heard the urban legends of a woman with a baby asking for help only for her to reveal that the baby has the head of a dog before she attacks you. Whoa, I haven't heard, I haven't heard that one. Mama John was not about to take any chances and put himself in any danger like that, especially when he already felt like something was wrong. He sped up as he drove past, and when he looked in his rearview mirror, he saw her. She was running after him with inhuman speed. In fact, she was catching up with his speeding car. He floored it in the direction of his home, and thankfully, when he looked back, he was gaining speed on her. That's when he saw her arms stretch out towards the car. They elongated while her nails turned into razor-sharp claws. She tried to grab onto the car, but he was going too fast. She only managed to leave tears through the metal of his trunk. He still didn't stop. He drove all the way home, ran inside, and hid under the covers. The next day, everyone was worried because he hadn't left his room. When they went to check on him, he was pale, green, and burning with a fever. The fever lasted for days, and Mamu John never never went for his late-night drives ever again. He has no idea what exactly or who exactly that woman was. He never even saw her face. All he could assume was that she was a jinn, meaning to harm him for some reason unknown. I have several other stories of jinn because my family's children seem to attract them, but they're children and they hit differently, and I just don't feel right about sharing them. They're truly terrifying for me and the members of my family. Love your podcast. Your dynamic with each other is so fun and lovely. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, tale. I, I, I like the tales of the jinn just because to me... You know, and I think this about like, you know, various world religions and things where everyone's telling the same stories in a different way. Yeah. And they have different, you know, terms and the semantics change, but the but the actual encounters or mm-hmm. the, the core beliefs remain pretty similar. Yeah. And so like to me, like the yeah, the, the gin tales just remind me of, you know, American tales, you know, Western mm-hmm. European tales. Of like the lady in the road. Demonic entities or just apparitions. Yeah. You know, it's just different names for what could be if this is all real, the same thing. But that did remind me, last week we brought up that Hawaii. We, I mean, when you talk, when you told the Hawaii, uh, my story, 
Then we mentioned that older Hawaiian story of the lady in the middle of the road with yeah. the dark hair. Ha. And th- this reminded me of that. Yeah. And randomly, and I was trying not to laugh because it, it's a scary story. We we just watched Terminator 2 again recently with the kids. Yeah. And I was also thinking of Schwarzenegger driving away and then the other Terminator machine fucking chasing him in the car. <laughs> so I had to like, no, don't focus on the Terminator. Focus on oh my God. scary lady. I was thinking about how like uh, where you grew up. Mm-hmm. How it might be something there was in the a air. little fuzzy in the air. <laughs> I love it when people can't see the fuzzy and you just look like a crazy person. <laughs> right, it's like when a bee's attacking you. Um, people are watching you from a distance. They're just like, oh, "What's going on over there?" I was just thinking about Kyler and how much he hates bugs. I've never seen like I mean, it's he not, loses it. Lose and it is so fucking funny. Mm-hmm. Start squealing. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. It, even if it's just like a fucking fly, just like ugh. Mm-hmm. He really. <laughs> so funny um but yeah i was just thinking about like uh where you grew up you know kind of like middle of nowhere mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't actually be totally crazy to see somebody walking along the side of the road if like their car had broken sure. down or you know it's like i think about you know where i grew up you know i had friends that lived not so much in town and so mm-hmm. it's like you know you'd go to like this part of town and i mean seeing someone walking alongside the road late at night your initial instinct is like, are they okay? Mm-hmm. Thank God he didn't stop. Because <laughs> I, I would want to stop. I'm a bleeding heart. I mean, that is that is like straight up horror movie stuff. When mm-hmm. you're dark road, middle of nowhere, you know, late at night, see somebody who seems like a regular person at first, kind of, you know, walking alongside of the road. Mm-hmm. And then they come over to your car and then their face changes. Ha. And then you're dead. And then you're dead. Uh, do you want to talk to our Annabelle? Oh, I do. I do. You I do. do. Open your big I'll open this book juicy back up. book back up. Uh, I want to thank everybody again for the ratings and the reviews. Uh, everybody, creeps and peepers. Very, very much appreciated. It helps us find new listeners and it keeps us up in the charts. And we are uh, constantly up in the charts. We are? Uh, on Spotify. Like I don't and, even check. And Apple. Yeah, I check. You know, I'm just curious, you know, how, well, how things I, are trending. You, you know, I like numbers. Well, oh, my God. I like stats. Yes. I like analysis. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, very thankful, very thankful goes, for all that. Dan, Dan will like tell me in the morning. He'd be like, "Okay, now listen." It was like this hell has started day, and he'll start rattling off numbers. Like I was doing some, I was doing some number crunching, and if we do this, and if we do that, and if we save this many dollars, and like we'll get to our retirement by this year. And I'm like, it is like seven a.m. Mm. When did you have time? So well, I got up this morning and I was checking our bank accounts and I was looking I at ESPN. I got my compound interest calculator out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, bless you. You're the reason that I'm ever going to get to retire, but. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. This, I find it's them comforting. Cute. You do. Uh, so, uh, and, and want to thank you. Uh, send out some shout outs. Some thank you shout outs to our Annabelles. Thank you very much for supporting our show. Uh, Thora Cottrell, Colton Schmidt, Rocco, no last name. Uh, <laughs> this, I don't know if this is a real name, but I love it. Cricket Bat. I know. I saw that and I was like, I have to get that one to Dan. If if that's if your that's, real name, it's still cool. It's fucking awesome. But um, funny. Just uh, you know, um, I'm guessing you know British or South African or something. If not, uh, Zach Desper. Ruben Medina, uh, Ernestina Fields, Samantha Labs, Chris Maciel, and Chelsea Greenberg. Thank all of you. Good job. I want to thank my Annabelles. I'm claiming these ones. Uh, Brian Haggerty, Sam and Vincent, Caitlin Basque, Brenna Ogle, Rachel Stevenson, Kara Lee Brown, Raymond Flagg, Lee McKenzie, Andrew Folks, and Olivia, no last name. And I have five spoopy shout outs. I wonder if Olivia, no last name, is related to Rocco, no last name. <laughs> Maybe they're her husband and wife. Oh my God, that'd be so cute. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know, that was, that was stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Sometimes, okay. sometimes okay. you say dumb shit. That's okay. fine. Okay. okay. Spoofy shout outs. Oh my God. This was so cute. Um, this couple got engaged and uh-huh. they put pumpkins on their heads. I was dying. <laughs> I didn't get their permission to put it up on the thing, but I just thought it was so cute. So anyways, congratulations on your engagement, Chris and Mac. Happy anniversary to Tony from Amanda. A huge happy anniversary to Daryl from Misty celebrating 31 oh, years. Oh, that's awesome. That's really uh, cool. Isn't that so mm-hmm. sweet? It's so sweet. Yeah. And a, a happy belated birthday to twin brother Joey from Gino. And happy birthday to Jared. He's going uh, to college just over the mountain pass in Butte. Cool. From his grandma, grandpa, and Aunt Ashley. I love it. The whole family listens. I wonder if he's going to the College of Mining or something. Like he that. might be, which is really like... Mm-hmm. Remember when we drove up there? Mm-hmm. It's a very cool school. It's very cool looking. Yeah, very uh, specialized degrees. All yeah. right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. And I promise uh, I won't butcher people's stories next week. I was like, mush yeah, mouth. I, I, felt, I felt a little foggy today, too. Uh, who knows? Sorry, guys. Uh, you can email us uh, for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan and Kate Keith on social media, badmagicmerch.com, producer Sophie Evans for help with story curation, Joe Paisley and Zach... Zach Flannery uh, for producing, directing, and for custom soundbed creation. Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story email. Zach Cohen for soundbed creation. Uh, subscribe while you're laughing. Because <laughs> when you kind of started, when you stumbled over Zach Flannery's name, I was thinking how to like. Work. I only stumbled, not that I don't know his name, but I'm like, well, but he's not here today, so should I thank him? I have like, these weird inner monologues going as I'm talking. <laughs> I know, I know. But then I was thinking, <laughs> Flax Zannery. Flax Zannery. Uh, thanks to Flax Zannery. No, subscribe to Bad Magic Productions. On, we're all over the place today. I'm sorry. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want more content at Scared to Death Podcast. Uh, we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, with over 10,000 members now. Uh, thank you to Liz Hernandez for moderating. And, and if you don't um, want to hear more ads, if you want monthly bonus content, check out our Patreon. Uh, you get the entire catalogs uh, ad-free and more. And I send out... And you send out little messages all the time. I do. Next week, uh, both of us are going to work hard on being fucking focused. I wasn't disfocused. My mouth just wasn't <laughs> moving. I was like, what is happening? I felt like... <laughs> sleep paralysis. I- sleep paralysis. <gasps> oh, we were sleep paralysis this whole time. <laughs> enjoy. Hey, good morning. Good morning, everybody. And enjoy your nightmares, creeps and fevers. <laughs> Bye, guys. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but has no home here within scared to death.